Hello and welcome to the very first episode of season two of Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin. It's a podcast that brings listeners an in-depth look at innovative strategies that propel higher education institutions forward. And you got me, I'm Tremika Benjamin, your host. And today we're kicking off season two with a woman that I've admired and respected for so long. I've actually wanted her on season one. So I'm so thankful to have her on season two. And this is President Madeline Kumamiega. She is the president of Miami-Dade College. Today, you're gonna hear Madeline talk about her journey, all of the challenges, the lessons she's learned along the way, and everything that prepared her for a presidency for the country's largest community college. Now, she's gonna share the decisions that fueled her heart, drove her passion for helping students to attain education. And she's also gonna share how she tackled her first 100 days, which is quite inspiring. If you want to listen more to any other Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin, season one or the upcoming season two, visit www.deepdivestv.com. You'll find more information and additional episodes with higher education titans just like Madeline. Now let's dive in to President Kumanieka. First, before we start, President Kumanieka, do you mind if I call you Madeline? No, please do. Okay, perfect. So I have to say, I know that we've spoken multiple times, but I am so happy about this presidency that you have at Miami Day. They have quite the treat to have you as president. And I guess what I want to ask first is, how do you think that others would learn from this achievement of going and leading the country's largest community college? You know, I, I think one of the takeaways for me was really leaving the college, right? I started at the college as a student. Mm. And that isn't very different from many people that I've talked to at community colleges across the country have come back as an advisor or faculty member started. That's what draws right. them their own personal experience. So being there and really growing at the institution from an academic advisor to a dean of students, to a campus president, and at that 20-year mark, deciding to leave. And I think that that makes me today a much stronger leader coming back to serve the institution because I've seen the institution through a different lens, but I've also seen and experienced higher education through a different lens. One from the lens of families and poverty and children, and one from policy and policymakers and legislators. And so to be able to come back and influence now and serve the institution with that wealth of knowledge. And I would just say that I think that's an important aspect in my journey to getting here. And when I first had the opportunity to meet you, I've always been fascinated with your journey. Number one, I love the fact that you played basketball at Miami-Dade. So hashtag fan. And not only were you a student, you also... Took, you took this role and in a frontline worker all the way up, you left, of course. Then you went into the nonprofit space before you came back. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you worked with an organization that assisted higher ed, but it was nonprofit completely. Am I right? 100% nonprofit, a 21 member board. I think that's also oh my gosh. Aspect, working with 21 board members, real board of directors, fiduciary responsibility, and you know, nonprofit work. So it's fundraising, 
It's cultivating relationships, it's partnerships. But I also would say that I didn't do it because I thought I would come back as a college president. I did it because at the time it was, I just needed to fuel my heart again, to remember why we're in higher education. The truth is we're in higher education because the power of education moves individuals out of poverty. You know, to set the landscape, Florida had gone through just past Senate Bill 1720 or was going through developmental education reform. You know, a lot of the whys were in question. Why the value of higher education? And so to go out with Take Stock and Children was a program that helped students complete high school. But the board's vision was to pivot to not only college, to high school completion, but to college completion. Mm. And how we could create a college-going culture among the kids that we served across 67 counties in Florida that were living in poverty. It's interesting because when you moved back into the college side of higher education, you know, leading from the college space, you know, you moved in as the first female and the first Hispanic chancellor for the Florida college system. And on top of all that, you were a Democrat that was appointed by a Republican, if I'm not mistaken. So first of all, all of this is highly unusual. Every bit of what I'm saying is just unheard of. How does that feel being such a constant barrier breaker when you're tackling as the first, the first, the first, the first? What does that feel like? And how much pressure does that give you? So I'll go back NPA. Edith Graham was my economics teacher who in high school registered all to vote. And I was like, I'm an independent, I'm a, you know, and so ended up in that um, path with really, you know, grounded on fiscal conservatism. How do we sustain the things that we do? And that's true for higher education. We can't always be more is going to make us better. How can we sustain what we're doing, scale what we're doing and build efficiencies into it? But I don't think I ever set out to be the first of anything. I can say that I'm been the first, and I hope that I'm not the last, that the job that I take seriously is making sure that while I might have been the first through the door, that the door behind me is filled with women who have a sense of belonging and feel that they belong. But yeah, I mean, it pretty much, you know, the first Hispanic (laughs) And I have to say, I wasn't, that wasn't what I was looking for. I was doing Take Stock and Children. I was doing, you know, I was really having a, a great time helping families. But With the governor, he really had an agenda that aligned my agenda and perspective on higher education, keep it affordable. And the way that you do is just not mounting tuition increases. How do we make sure that families know that college is affordable to them and that it's accessible to them? And that was a priority that we prepare students for a career ahead, whether it's transferring to one of our universities and thriving there or we're preparing them to work. Because fundamentally, the students we serve in community colleges are looking for a pathway that can be life-sustaining for their families. I wish that I could say it's they want to lay on the green grass, look up at the blue skies and find themselves. No, community college students have an urgency and a desire to have a career path that helps them provide for their families. And I think that's our our number one obligation to the students is making sure they see that path for themselves and that we support them in that path. And just to round out, before I take everyone to 
your journey so far at Miami-Dade. I want to just round out that following your role as chancellor for the state of Florida, you then went to serve as the executive vice president at Tallahassee Community College. And although I've I watched from afar and I've spent time with you when you were chancellor, I think this is the time that we've spent the most time together. And I have to say, before I even go any further, your ability to turn and pull not just women, just people who believe in the mission and, and believe in education the way that you do, you have done a fantastic job of making sure that these people have a space and a place for them to find their own in higher education and in executive leadership. And you also did that with your students at TCC to work. And this is one of the programs that I'm actually giddy when I read about it, when I hear about it, when people talk about it, because we all know what TCC did to get them into other higher education institutions. But what you did to put these students to work is unprecedented. Can you talk a little bit about that? In addition to how you did it during COVID-19, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, so I would just say, you know, pivoting from the chancellor role, you know, joining Governor DeSantis's transition team. You know, the governor signed number one in workforce. He wanted Florida to be number one in workforce. So during Governor Scott's tenure, it was get students into jobs, 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 jobs. And Governor DeSantis was workforce and talent. And I then decided to work with colleges on strategic planning and priorities. I got an opportunity to work with Jim Murdoch, who was a fantastic friend while I was chancellor, a president that I had such respect for. And as we laid out the strategic priorities for TCC, working with the board and and the vice presidents, it was this natural moment that I was jonesing (laughs) to get back on a campus and with students and, you know, out of kind of state politics and government. And so to get, you know, being back on the TCC campus, working with the board on the strategic priorities, the fit was there. So when I came in as executive vice president and provost working with then our vice president, Kim Moore. What we did is we brought together the three silos of the college that oftentimes are man, turf, tradition, and trust kind of competing in there. So academic affairs, student affairs, and workforce and innovation came all under the leadership of the provost and the EVP. So I got, we broke down silos you know, working with just amazing leaders there, Dr. Sherry Rowland, you know, Dr. Kim Moore, Dr. Calandra Stringer. I mean, the, these are amazing like powerhouse, right? right. So, yeah, we got to like just put on a clear canvas and rewrite. And so we had clear pathways for TCC to FSU. We had clear pathways to T- TCC to FAMU, but we had this whole aspect you could come to TCC to work and the TCC to work pathway with entrepreneurship, apprenticeships, technology, cybersecurity, STEM. We got a STEM grant to, you know, put in a growth mindset to expand individuals into STEM careers, built the first science summit, and then really another federal grant on advanced manufacturing. And what I'm proud of is that all of these silos that sometimes are on the same highway, but different lanes came together to benefit the students and to benefit the community. And they're just doing awesome work. I'm so proud of of what we're doing. And I, I can't leave without saying so proud of being recognized at TCC as one of the top 10 colleges in America through the Aspen Institute. And I can't tell you enough how this is some complex work. And for you to come in 
and to be able to help and play a major role in the implementation of that TCC to work. How did you get the executive leadership team to rally around it? How did y'all get all of these powerhouses rolling in the right, in the same direction? How did that happen? Leading with students. I think that when you ask the questions about how will this benefit the students, how does this help our community, and how are we on our, in our own way? Yeah. And so, you know, there wasn't a barrier that came up that wasn't our own institutional barrier, right? That it was, why aren't we doing this? Well, so-and-so is a talking to this person. This falls over here. This person gets the credit. When you tear down those silos and you're like, what do we need to do for our community? What do we need to do for our students? How do we put people to work? And then came the pandemic. And I think that what the pandemic did for colleges and universities across the country, especially community colleges, is accelerated innovation. Just Mm -hmm. we are already pretty innovative places. We're nimble institutions. But this just made us go faster and be able to adopt technology and innovation faster and develop new programs faster. And that's what we did. And I think that was also, if there's a silver lining in this pandemic, what it did, not just at TCC, but I think is happening at other institutions, is tearing down some of those silos. The greatest challenge is that post-pandemic, as leaders, we don't allow those silos to be rebuilt within our organizations. I think that that's the future of, of higher education, is this pace and this acceleration and adoption. Yep, I completely agree. It cannot stop. And you said three, you said three T's. You said turf, tradition, and trust. And trust. That's fantastic. I love it. And yeah, I, I always I always say, look, there's those three T's and then there's the three P's. People, process, policy. <laughs> I love it. You can figure out anything that you're working on in those buckets and in a sense, lead for them. It doesn't mean lower the standards, but design for them. Design that you're entering into someone's turf and they may not trust you enough or that you have to respect the tradition of the institution or the department. So how do you build on it? And then when you when you are, I think, streamlining processes and innovating, what's in the way? Is it a policy? Is it our own process? Or is it people? And that allows, I think, for folks to come around and identify the barrier without making it personal about a department. Right. You know, and so I think I find that helpful in trying to shape a new culture, a culture of collaboration and transparency. You've got to be able to call these out and design for them and think about them intentionally and in a caring way. So now I'm ready to talk about your time at Miami Dade. And I know as as we prepared for this discussion, I talked a great deal about how when we were going through season two, everybody, if you talk to President Pumariega, please talk to her about her 100-day strategy. Tell us about the 100-day strategy. So listen, I am on the hook to ask you about this 100-day strategy. And what I'll tell you is I read it, and I think it's probably one of the most profound, thoughtful 100-day reports and reflection that I've ever seen. And, you know, in my 12 years of working with community college presidents, this one is pretty top notch. And I don't want to give away too much because I want you to walk us through all of the main, you know, areas. But first, tell me, how did you approach this? How did you identify these 
five main areas that you wanted to focus on? Did you come in knowing them or did just through the discovery you identified? Through discovery. So I took the hundred, my hundred day before I hit day one. First thing I wanted to do was get out and visit the campuses, visit with faculty, staff, students. And so the first day I was not in the office, the was in the office for the first hour and then set out to visit eight campuses in the next three days and feel the people and feel the culture, feel what the concerns were, the things that people were proud of. I came in to the 100 day with our why, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what continued to emerge during those days. Why do we do what we do? What is our why? Everyone has their why because I think that when you approach leadership, it's so important to approach it with what's your purpose and passion? As a leader yourself, What's your purpose? And I think my purpose is a thread kind of between my faith and my passion. You know, my my foundational faith in, in God and we are here to serve and, and what we do and change people's lives and the passion to change people's lives through the power of education. That, in a sense, owns into my why and my purpose. You know, I think the other part is uh, leading with heart and compassion. How can you put out and be compassionate? In that 100-day plan, that was my thought. My vision was to go out and lead with my purpose and passion, with my heart, connect to people, build on those relationships, and then build the vision for the college on our success. And so the themes began to emerge, student success, academic excellence and innovation. Another theme was you know, creating a culture of care, hearing from our folks that sometimes they didn't feel the institution cared for them or that the institution wasn't listening to them. So how could we expect to create a culture of care for students if we didn't have that ourselves, if we weren't intentional about creating it within for our own internal community and our external community? You know, valuing equity. How do we make sure that we look at every student and we give every student the resources uh, to succeed? How do we create the right environment of support, whether it's through academic support, academic pathways, scholarships, emergency grants, all of those? And then the other aspect that emerged was really securing the future. How could we secure the college's future in in several ways? One, fueling the community's talent as the workforce engine for our community, diversifying our funding streams. How do we monetize our assets? And how do we drive with data? And those were the themes that began to emerge in town hall meetings, in Zoom meetings, in face-to-face sessions, and um, working, you know, philanthropic roundtables. And then that's what shaped very much like research, right? These mm-hmm. themes emerged, but I wanted to take it a step further in that plan. These were the themes. And most importantly, on the bottom of each of the themes that emerged is what I heard and what we will do. I love them. And I think, so I just want to recap. And do you mind, uh, Madeline, if we post this on the site for other presidents to actually see the report? Absolutely. I've shared it on our website and I shared it with colleagues you know, my AACC colleagues and ACE colleagues as well. So we could collaborate together. The idea of sharing the 100-day work is 
this is what we're thinking at NBC. We want to partner with you. We want to learn from you and we want to share with you. And, and so that was why I wanted to share that out to the broader community of um, institutions and presidents that make up the higher education ecosystem in our country. Right. And so just to recap, we have reimagining student success, accelerating academic excellence and innovation, supporting culture of caring, living the values of equity and access. I love the program of the Rising Black Scholars Program. I think it's a really profound program that you all have at MDC. And then securing our future. And what I like about securing our future, too, is that it is the business, the part, all of the things that when you're living a mission that you don't want to talk about because it's not about the mission, it's about the engine that drives the mission, right? And you have put it in a way that keeps it so mission focused that no matter who the person is at MDC, they can get behind it because it's securing the mission in the future. So it's really a well, well done document that kind of outlines what you've done and where you want to go following that first 100 days. What I also like about it is you have built an infrastructure that can drive your strategic initiatives. So a lot of institutions, to your point, they sort of live in silos. This president's over here doing their 100 days, and then they're over there building strategic initiatives. Talk about how you're using these to drive the engine of building out your strategic direction for MDC in the future. So part of you know that 100 days was also coming to the board with a new strategic plan. And so our strategic plan today has these themes, reimagining student success. And I think that we have to reimagine our student experience in terms of the Uber of education. Students should be able to, with one click, be able to get admitted, with one click, be able to get registered, be able to see their academic path, how much it's going to cost them. And what kind of jobs are out there? What kind of transfer opportunities? How do we make sure? Because I do think the next series of disruptions for higher education are less policy driven and much more consumer driven. And if are and are we ready for consumer driven disruptions, which are what our students are expecting and how they're expecting to engage with us? Academic innovation and excellence is another strategic priority and and that we have to be about teaching and learning. What makes community colleges in America special is that our faculty come to us because they have a passion and purpose for teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that we drive the best pedagogy, the best in class in driving academic excellence and that we're innovating for that and that equity isn't a separate silo, but that an equity mindset is everywhere. Whether you're reimagining a student experience and you think about one-click admissions is about a student who may not have a parent right there coaching them how to navigate the admissions process, the Florida residency process. How do we streamline all of that? Because if we want to get at equity, our first step is you belong here. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. student's sense of belonging because of their experience of just connecting to the institution, seeing that academic pathway, having the resources that are available to them, and engaging with the institution. And so equity sits in throughout the institution, not just in one silo. And how do we integrate for that? Uh, Creating the culture of care and supporting the culture of care really speaks to how do we redesign our own professional development pathways? You know, we talk about 
micro-credentials and stackable credentials for institutions we serve outside of our own institution? Are we doing it for our own folks? Are uh-huh. we upskilling and leveling up our own? We just launched a presidential service excellence program. If you're recognized as in a presidential excellence award, there's a monetary value. If you're a department that's doing it great and reimagining the student success, I'm showing up with pizza and we're having a pizza party. And if you did the Love right it. thing, one of your peers recognized who you're getting a note from me that says, thank you for serving our students. Thank you for valuing a culture of care um, at our institution. So I think, you know, within there, that's the vision. Fueling the talent, I think fueling the talent, the global economy is so important for us. Talent is the new economic driver for every community. The states that get talent right are going to win job growth and are going to be able to bring in those high-wage, high-skilled jobs. And so making sure that we are looking at making credit and non-credit seamless looking at how students' goals are going to be about skill acquisition and not just credit accumulation. So how do we balance those so that the educational experience for a student looks and feels as if you are building on those skills that are going to be needed? I think that the future students are going to need, you know, those future-proof skills, empathy, design thinking, communication, and teamwork. But they need applied skills, mathematics and history and English. And they also need digital skills. They're going to need a digital wallet, artificial intelligence, automation, how those digital tools are going to help the way that they work, they learn, they live, they travel. And then the last one is securing the, the college's future and securing it through not just anecdote, but a data-driven culture, time to reflect and think about how we make data trustworthy, transfer, you know, transparent and actionable at the institution. And then how do we look at efficiencies? And so those are the, the five priorities that emerged through lots of campus collaboration and work. And we presented it to the board in June. They loved the themes. And then we've developed high-impact strategies And we have champions. Our college leadership are the champions leading those goals. They're cross-disciplinary. They're interdisciplinary. They're cross-campus. It's not just the student folks looking at the strategic enrollment management plan. It's everyone together looking at it. I love that. And it really does solidify that everybody doesn't own the enrollment management portion and the retention portion of the work. And I'm going to shift and I'm going to ask the question. It's going to throw you off a little bit. So I want to apologize in advance. Luckily, we're virtual right now, so I'm not in front of you. So you can't, you know, pop me. So tell me, what keeps you up at night about all this work? I mean, this is big stuff, right? What keeps you up at night when you think about this work pushing forward? You know, one of the things that keeps me up is making sure that we're messaging to everyone that these aren't initiatives. This is a culture shift. Like, I don't want folks at the institution to think we're piling on more work. I want them to come to the table with honesty and say, this part of my work makes no sense. We should be doing this through technology, but I see this part of my work really impactful. This is how I really change lives. I want to do more of it. And so I think there's always a danger about 
overlaying these as initiatives and not redesigning our entire institutional experience. And so the tension between compliance, it's back to process and policy and people, right? You know, the tension that we have to make sure that we have accountability and transparency. We collect data, we do state reports, we do all of those things. But that's not the driver of why we do the things we do. That the driver is our students and our mission. And so what keeps me up at night is that I haven't said it enough, that I haven't spent enough time with people for them to believe it, that they have a a place at the table to co-create this together. So that's, you know, one of the things that I think always what's always kept me out at night is students. Are we providing enough support? Are we reaching them? Do we have the right systems in place where a faculty can let us know there's a student struggling and we can connect them to mental health resources fast enough? that there's a student who's hungry and they know they can come to our food pantry or they need emergency aid so they don't go homeless. I think about those students every night and they keep me up every night because I know our folks have all of those services for them, but just because we have them is not enough. Yep. They know we have them. And are we vibrating at the frequency that they're at? Yes. Are we over here in our own tunes, vibrating on our own frequency, but not vibrating at that frequency that connects clearly the students that we're here to support them? That's a good, good, good way to put that. Are we vibrating at the same frequency as what our our students are used to hearing? I think that's fantastic advice. I want to just close in thanking you so, so much for this time, Madeline. I think A lot of the work that you've done, not only in just the 100 days, but in the decades of what you've done in higher ed, around higher ed, in nonprofit, has been a legacy that we will all see and benefit from, especially in Florida, for decades to come, generations to come. I'm so excited about the work that you've done at the chancellorship role. I love TCC to work, which I've probably said and beat that drum to death, but I just think it's one of the most fascinating and fantastic programs that we've done in the state. So thank you so much for all of this. Thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you being on Deep Dives. Thank you so much, my friend. You are amazing. And I love everything that you're doing and the way that we partner. And I think the way that most importantly, you're giving space for thought leadership. This space matters. Sometimes we're in the business of doing everything we need to get done. I'm not looking at how am I sitting on a national stage? What plenary session can I do? And so. I thank you because there are these moments that we're sitting and we're talking and it is that moment of reflection that I'm enough, you know, that what I bring is enough and harnessing that power. And that happens through stopping and having this meaningful dialogue with a thought leader like you and then making sure you amplify our voices out there to thought leaders everywhere so that we can learn from each other, we can share with one another. And most importantly, it's so important to care for one another in this work when we're changing lives and transforming our students' opportunities. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much, President Pumariega. And I look forward to seeing you face-to-face at some point. Oh my God, I can't wait. I can't wait. I know. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. 
So there you have it. And thank you so much for listening to an episode of Deep Dives with Tramika Benjamin. I want to thank President Pumadiega for joining the show and spending time with me. And I just, I want to say what an amazing story to launch our second season. And I promise if you enjoyed this episode, you are going to want to keep coming back because this season we're going to continue to talk with some of the most inspirational leaders, just like Madeline, in higher education. And don't forget to check out the episode description on the website for a copy of President Pumadiega's 100-day report that she discussed on this episode. For more information, please visit www.deepdivestv.com or by subscribing through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.